It's a particularly special day today in that we will be baptizing three people. So yeah, absolutely. So we are excited about that. And uh, at this time, early in our service, we're going to have them come up and give a testimony uh, explaining what God has done, the, 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 the grace of God in their own lives individually as they have experienced it. So Liz Melville, Brittany Ryden, and Jeremy Torres will be uh, baptized today. And uh, that will happen at the end of our service after our communion and our singing. But now I want to go ahead and invite Liz to come up and uh, each of them will just come up in turn. To hear of the goodness of God, all that he has done for us in Christ. And one of the wonderful things about hearing these testimonies is that we get not only to rejoice with the individual who shares his or her testimony, but we also get to remember what Christ has done in each of our lives. As we, we stood up perhaps, or perhaps we didn't, but we have confessed and professed our faith in Jesus and, and told of others of the grace that God has brought to us in Christ. And so I hope that this has also reminded you of your own baptism, reminded you of your own standing before God because of what he has done for us in Jesus. I wanna just say now uh, that the kids are now dismissed. Uh, Joanna wanted me to make sure that I said that, so got a couple stars by it here on my sheet. Kids are dismissed. I guess it looks like they already have left. She didn't trust that I'd say it. Um, so there we go. So thank you guys for sharing with us those testimonies. I know that can be difficult. Uh, it can be difficult to get up in front of people and speak, but it can also be difficult, especially to get up in front of people and share such intimate details about your life. So thank you for edifying us today in that way. And I do look forward to baptizing each of you at the end of our service. So let's read our passage for today. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Titus 2, 11 to 14. And we'll then pray for God's blessing on our time in his word. I will read it off of the poster over there on the wall. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Our holy God, our loving God, our loving Heavenly Father, we just come before you today with hearts that are full with praise. Thank you for Liz and for Brittany and for Jeremy. And thank you for all of us who are here today to share in this very special time with them. Thank you, God, for the reminder today, both from your word as it is preached, read, sung, prayed, and also from the truth of your gospel displayed in baptism. Thank you for this, this ordinance of the church that communicates once again the gospel, the saving gospel of your son. God, I pray for people here today, all of us, that will grow in the gospel, but also, Father, I pray for conversions, people who have not renounced 
sin, who have not renounced worldly passions, and who do not live lives that are possessed by Jesus, owned by you, Father. I pray that your grace will will be abundant, your grace will be abounding, as you say at the end of Romans 5, that your grace will be abounding even here, even now, in this place today. And Father, that as the gospel is made known through the preaching of the word to the body, and as the gospel is displayed through baptism, that hearts would be turned towards you, God. Those who have never known you and those who do, all of us who do, Father, that we would grow today in holiness, in love for you, in a desire to to gratefully and to humbly serve you while we breathe. God, would you help us today? Would you be with us as we go into your word? Help it to be preached clearly and help it to be understood by all of us. And we just uh, offer this entire service to you, God. Pray that it glorifies you and that it edifies each of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So today is the second of two sermons on this very glorious mountain peak passage, Titus 2, 11 to 14. And these two sermons together, part one and part two, are entitled A Gospel Foundation. A Gospel Foundation. And when we see this idea or this title, A Gospel Foundation, there is one word that we should focus on and it is that word grace in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. If you go ahead and put the slide up for us, Bentley. As we've considered grace, we look, we see here, it's a little clear over there, but we see here five things about God's grace as we look through this passage. Five things that we've looked at between last week and this week. First, the essence of grace, the effect of grace, the expectation of grace, the event of grace, and the end of grace. Last week, We covered the essence and the effect, and today we will move to the latter three and finish up with this passage today. As we've heard these baptismal testimonies, and as we anticipate these three baptisms at the end of our service, we are brought back to an idea that emerged in our sermon last week, and it's this, dying to sin and living to God. Dying to sin, living to God to God, which is why it's interesting to me. I, I, I had kind of thought about what to preach today. Do, do we just kind of continue through Titus as we were? Do we kind of take a step away and do a sermon on a text related specifically to baptism? And one of the things that I find quite amazing is that baptism just sort of nicely fits at this very place, both from last week's sermon and what we will look at in particular this week. But dying to sin and living to God, an important theme that we looked at last week. Grace saves us from something to something. It saves us from sin to God, and then it trains us in accordance with that very thing that we've been saved from. And so it should be no surprise to us that the grace of God, which is freely given to us, would would automatically train us in holiness and godliness of life because grace by its very nature is that which saves us from unholiness or from godlessness or ungodliness. It saves us from those things to God, to self-control, uprightness, and godliness of life. And so we see that this training involves training in renouncing and training in living unto God. In other words, after grace saves us, it continually says to us, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
I mean, in that sense, everywhere we go, once we've been converted, once we've been saved, turned to Christ, this is what grace is essentially always saying in our ears. How can we, how can you, how can you who died to sin still live in it? Don't, don't. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know the one to whom you belong? And it is this dying to sin and being made alive to God as we are united to Christ that is outwardly symbolized in baptism. So that's why I say it's very natural that we would baptize today coming out of last week's passage. Is that as we think about this idea of dying to sin and being made alive to God, we have very clearly the idea of baptism. So Romans 6, 3 to 4 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We also find this imagery in Colossians 2.12 where Paul tells the Colossians, you were buried, buried, (laughs) buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what am I saying? Essentially, I'm saying this. Baptism visually conveys the fact that we've been spiritually united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So this is one of the reasons why we teach, and I emphasize one of the reasons, but I think it's a, it's a major reason why we teach that only believers are to be baptized. That when we baptize a person, we are communicating this very real truth that in a person's life, they have died, been buried, and been raised with Christ. They have identified with Christ, and therefore they've died to sin and been raised to newness of life. And so you go under the water, dying to sin, and you come up out of the water raised to newness of life. Now let me say this, baptism doesn't save. Everything I just described about God's grace and the effect that it has on us happens prior to baptism. It is something that happens in the life of a person. That's why I say we baptize believers because this is something that is, that is imaging for everyone and for this individual the truth of what's happened internally. It's an outward sign of an internal reality And that is this turning away from sin and turning to God in Christ. So having looked at the essence of grace and the effect of grace last week, as I said before, as we looked at verses 11 and 12, today we come first to the expectation of grace. Last week I drew your attention to the words at the end of verse 12. So look there with me. Titus 2 verse 12. These words at the end of that verse, in the present age. This is how we are to live in the present age. And this, of course, as I said last week, reminds us that there is an age to come. And baptism not only communicates what has happened, but it also communicates what is going to happen in the age to come when Christ returns. But let's look at verse 13, the expectation of grace. That's where we are picking up today. The expectation of grace. Chapter two, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God that saves us and trains us, as we've seen, also does something else. 
It puts out in front of us an amazing future. Grace puts an amazing future out in front of us, something that we can look forward to, something that we are drawn towards. Grace also does this. And so a gospel life that is built on grace is a life of expectation. Where there is grace, there is expectation. So let me just start as we move in this morning by asking you this question. What is kind of the state today of your expectation? I'm convinced, I mean, more and more am I convinced that all of the things that we, that we tend to struggle with in our spiritual lives as Christians derive from many of the sins that we fall into, many of the, the, the kind of dry spells that we fall into is because we lose sight of this very thing. It's because we lose our hope. We lose sight of this future reality that lies out in front of us. Grace has saved us and it daily trains us in accordance with that salvation and it plasters before our eyes always this future hope and draws us toward it. And so many of the sins that we fall into, so, many of the, so much of the dryness that we fall into is because we simply lose our expectation. So how is your expectation are your thoughts focused primarily or perhaps even exclusively oftentimes on this, what's here, what you'll do this week, how life is going here and now on earthly things, even worldly passions, worldly pursuits, or are you focused on what grace has set before you in the future? You know, it's interesting that this hope, this expectation, this anticipation is given two very interesting analogies that we find in the New Testament. One is it is a helmet, the helmet of the hope of salvation. It's also called an anchor of the soul. Just imagine those two things. I mean, how often do we fall into sin and fall into despair simply because our minds get carried away? Simply because our thoughts go into all sorts of places, whether it's just sort of anxiety and worry and depression that kind of flows out of that, or whether it's lust and greed and selfish ambition, whatever it might be, these things come from our thoughts. These things begin in our minds. And what we're told with this analogy of a helmet is that hope has a way of protecting our minds so that we don't go in those directions when hope and the future hope is set before us. It's called an anchor. Now this is interesting because oftentimes in life we, we experience all sorts of things that sort of can drive us away from God. We experience all sorts of waves and wind. You think of the disciples on the boat as Jesus calms the sea. That sea is throwing that boat all over the place. And that's exactly what happens in our lives. Things come along from within us and from outside and it tosses our lives to and fro. And this wonderful thing called hope holds us still. It holds us tight to where we are so that we can weather all of those storms, so that we can go through all of those trials, all of those struggles. So it is a helmet and it is an anchor. And we are told here in verse 13 that as Christians, we are people who are waiting. We are much, I think, in this situation like Simeon and Anna. These are two individuals as we move towards Christmas that oftentimes don't get a lot of attention during Christmas, we focus on the wise men. We should be focusing on Jesus, obviously. But sometimes, you know, we talk about the stories of Christmas. There's, there's the wise men and the shepherds and others involved. But these, these two individuals that kind of come to the surface in Luke chapter 2 are very interesting, I think, in that they demonstrate this kind of hopeful, expectant, waiting disposition. 
These two people have gathered at the temple and they are waiting, as it says, in the case of Simeon, for the consolation of Israel. And Anna is waiting for the redemption of Israel. What are they doing? Hanging out? No. They're waiting. They're waiting in the holy place of God for God to do this thing that he had promised he would do. And we are a lot like them as we wait for Christ's second coming. They were waiting for Christ's first coming and we are waiting for Christ's second coming. So when you read about Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter two and you see the kind of seriousness there, you see the kind of devotion there, you see the kind of an old word, that kind of piety there, the question is, does that characterize our lives as we also are waiting on the coming of Jesus? So why are they waiting? How are they waiting? They are guided by the Spirit and immersed in divine revelation. This is what you see with Simeon and Anna. They are living in a world of Old Testament revelation. Imagine that. These are people who've devoted themselves to God's law. They've devoted themselves to the prophets, to the Psalms, to the wisdom literature. They've devoted themselves to everything that God has revealed in the Old Testament. And all of that is kind of coming to bear on this moment in history. And we're also told in Luke chapter 2 that the Spirit was upon them. And Anna is a prophetess. So what we learn from that, I think, is that our hope depends on both the Spirit and being immersed in this world of divine revelation. The Spirit's work in our lives comes through prayer. We read in Romans 15, 4, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, and listen to this, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So how do we grow in hope? You say, I don't have a lot of hope. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm always thinking about my job or my family or what I'm gonna do next for fun or my weekend or my next holiday or whatever it is. That's my focus. That's my sort of worldview is just limited to the horizontal, limited to the earthly. The response is to ask God for hope. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will give hope. And it says that you will abound in hope. Through prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will abound in hope. And then we see in Romans 15, 4, that we have hope through the encouragement of the scriptures. Same idea with Simeon and Anna. The Holy Spirit is present and they're living in a world of divine revelation, waiting for that which the prophets foretold. And when Paul tells us that our hope grows through the encouragement of the scriptures, we are left understanding that unless we live a life that is devoted to the scriptures, we won't have hope. Of course not. Because here's the thing, our lives always exist within a story world. Our lives are always sort of trying to, trying to grab hold of something that defines us or gives us meaning, gives us an identity, uh, gives us some sense of worth, gives us a way to understand our connection to everything else around us and to everything else that will come later and that has come before. We want to find our place in the world. What's interesting is God's word gives us very clearly our place in the world. God's revelation tells us precisely the story in which we are playing out our lives. And this story is one that will end with a glorious appearing of Christ. And so we won't have hope if we don't pray. We won't have hope if we don't have the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And we will not have hope if we don't devote ourselves to the Holy Scriptures. Because it's only in the Scriptures that we begin to plug our lives into the story that God has been playing out throughout history. 
So what are we waiting for? What is this thing that lies out in the future? Paul says it this way, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what we're waiting for. By the way, I'll just say this as a side note, that this is one of a a few passages in the New Testament, actually more than a few, one of a number of passages in the New Testament that give an explicit affirmation of the deity of Jesus. We see this in Romans 9, 5. We see this in John 1, 1. We see this in John 1, 18 and other passages that we find throughout the New Testament. But this is one of those where we have a clear affirmation of Christ's deity. So four things I want you to see about this future hope. And this future hope should capture our minds. It should pull us forward. It should motivate us. It should be like that one thing that that drives us every moment and that one thing that pulls us every moment through our lives. Without this hope, we won't have motivation to live the Christian life. It's why the text says this, that we are called to renounce these things that we live these kind, this kind of life, and then it says this, while we wait, while we wait. That's the way that you could, that's another way you could translate this participle, waiting. You could say, while we wait. The life of holiness that we're called to is always a life that's lived out while we wait. These two things are not separate. They are joined together perfectly. So four things. This future hope that we look forward to, it is certain, it is awesome, it is happy, and it is intimate. It is certain, certain, awesome, happy, and intimate. So first, it is certain. Look at Titus 1-2 at the very beginning of this epistle. Titus 1-2, he says, in hope of eternal life, this is Paul's ministry is carried out in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So, you know, hope oftentimes is associated with kind of wishful thinking. You know, we're looking out into the future and we're thinking, you know, I hope this works out. I hope things get better. I hope I get a better diagnosis from the doctor. I hope that I get a better job. I hope that this happens. And that's the way we kind of think about the word hope. But that's not the, the biblical idea of hope is not that. The biblical idea of hope is always tied together with the notion of certainty. It is sure, it is fixed, and it is sure because it is based on the promises of God who never lies. And that's where we get right at the that's what we get right at the beginning of this epistle. But it's not just this objective thing. And I want you to see this because this is really important. It's not just this objective thing where you look out there and you have the promise of God and you just sort of, you hope in it, and it's out there, it's detached from you, it's this thing that's been said, and you, you look at it, and you say, okay, I believe that. It's certain, it's fixed, because God made a promise. That absolutely is true, but God does an additional thing. God gives the Holy Spirit as a pledge, a guarantee. The Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit we know bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit in us bears fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And it communicates to us that he's, he communicates to us that he is there, that he's present. And the Holy Spirit is called a guarantee. He is called a pledge. Having the Holy Spirit in our lives tells us that this promise is not just this detached, objective thing. 
It has been wrapped up in with our lives. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to point us towards the reality of this promise and even more to point us to the fact that we will inherit it individually. Not just that it's this thing that God's gonna do for humanity. God's gonna do for us. God's gonna do this for me. I have the Holy Spirit. So it's certain. It's not a maybe thing. It's a certain thing. Secondly, it's awesome. I use this word carefully as Sharon Sellers would caution me against using this word so freely. But it is truly awesome. I mean, it is in every way. And she would say, this is definitely a time to use the word awesome. But the word awesome gets tossed around, you know, about everything. Everything is awesome in, in, in uh, contemporary speech. But it is truly awe-inspiring. This future hope is awesome because it is the appearance of the God-man in his royal glory. Look at Paul's reaction when he's on the road to Damascus. Look at John's reaction in the book of Revelation when the glorious, royal, enthroned king of glory, he's called the king of glory, when this one appears, it is awesome. It is all inspiring. Second Thessalonians 1.10 says that he will be marveled at among all who have believed. Now think about that for a moment. There's a lot of things we could say about what will happen when Christ returns. But here's the one thing that will, that will kind of overshadow everything else that will happen. We will be oh, marveling at this Jesus in his royal splendor, in his glory, all the glory of God present there, shining forth for us to see at his appearing. That will be the focus on that day. He will be the focus on that day in all of his glory. It is awesome in its grandeur and mystery. It's not only awesome because of the person who will appear as glorious, but it is also awesome to us in its grandeur and mystery. I mean, it says we will be like him. Uh, well, if you, just, if you heard what I just said, and then you consider that we will be like him, that's, that's mind-boggling. How can we even conceive of that, that he will appear in that splendor, in that royal glory, and we will be like him? We won't just marvel. We'll be marveling as we are being transformed into his perfect likeness we will shine like the stars of heaven Daniel 12 3 says wow I don't have a category for that I can't tell you what that's going to look like or be like no one can but what we know is that it is awesome in every conceivable Way. The perishable and the mortal will be transformed into something imperishable and immortal. We don't understand this because everything around us is perishable. Everything around us falls apart. Our, our, our mood falls apart. Our bodies fall apart. Everything around us is sort of devolving. And we are told that this will be a time when everything will be imperishable. And immortal. Our lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious body. We are told in Philippians chapter 3, our lowly body. That's what we have right now. We have a lowly body. That will be transformed into his glorious body, into a likeness of his glorious body. This is all going to happen in the air, by the way, which is, just raises the 
how incredible, how mysterious it is. We will be caught up in the air to meet him in the clouds. Now, let me just make a comment here. At this point, it is no surprise that people who aren't Christians would say, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's not. That's not surprising. But we believe this to be true. Just as God's people have always believed his word to be true. And we don't just believe it because it's wishful thinking. We believe it because by God's grace upon hearing the gospel, he gave us the Holy Spirit and he sealed the reality of this word in our hearts. And every day he bears witness to the truth of this as our hope grows in Christ. That's why we're here today. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, I can't give you an apologetic for us being caught up in the air to meet Christ. It's what the Bible teaches That's enough on this point. It's what the Bible teaches. And the Holy Spirit of God makes the word of God clearly true and accessible to us as we respond to it in faith. It will happen. And the world will be entirely remade. It is awesome also in its duration. When I was a little kid, I can remember distinctly one night in particular, lying in bed, It was dark, everyone in the house was asleep. I was lying in bed, I was probably seven, eight, nine, looking at the ceiling, and I I just kept repeating it. Forever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And to be honest, it terrified me. I was like, I I had no categories, I I didn't understand that. I could not, I couldn't grasp hold of that. It was beyond me. So much so that it unsettled me, even in a negative way as a child. Because I couldn't quite, I, I, I couldn't wrap my mind at all around that. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We have no category for that in our brains, in our thinking. But we are told that when this time comes, the glorious appearing of Christ, it will have no end ever. It will always be. Everything I've just described, all this, all this transformation, being like the stars of heaven, being like Jesus, marveling at Jesus forever. No end. Ever, ever, ever. So it is certain, it is awesome, and it is happy. Notice that it is called our blessed hope. It is our blessed hope. One of the things that you find in Genesis chapter three is that a blessed world becomes a cursed world. And you see this also at the end of Deuteronomy as God makes a covenant with his people at Sinai. And he tells them, you keep this law, this is what I will do. I will bless you and bless you and I will lavish my blessings upon you. But if you break my law and you turn away from me as your God and you turn to the gods of the peoples to whom you're going, then I will heap these curses upon you. Read those. That is, I think, in some ways, a restatement, really, of what we find in Genesis chapter three. We live in a cursed world. And what we know is that when Christ comes back, it will no longer be a cursed world, it will be a blessed world. It will be a happy world. And it will be all of that Because it will be a time of righteousness. Galatians 5.5 says, the hope of righteousness. So we could say this, this future hope is the hope of righteousness. In other words, it is the hope that one day we will be free from sin that corrupts, destroys, and distances us from God. Sin does all of these things. 
we don't understand what it would be like to be sinless. You may have a day where you pat yourself on the back and you think you, you've been doing all right. No, it doesn't happen. You know, there are days where we, we walk in the spirit, we're filled with the spirit, and we're walking more in step with God and we're communing with God. But we don't even, we can't even fathom what it would be like to be entirely sin free. This is what we're promised. The hope of righteousness, our blessed future. But most of all, it will be happy because of who we will be with. And that is why I say that it is intimate. It is intimate. This will be the appearing of our, notice that, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is ours. Is he yours? Is Jesus yours? I love the fact that as you're reading throughout Romans in particular, and Paul is talking about uh, what has happened to us in being saved, one of the things that is a constant recurring theme is that we now belong to Jesus. Constant theme throughout Romans, especially in chapter 6, chapter 7. We no longer belong to sin and condemnation. We belong to Jesus. We will be with him forever. So John 14, 3 says this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 ends this way after it describes all of the wonderful things that's going to happen as we're gonna be called up into the air to meet him and describes it in this way. And so we will always be with the Lord, period. Nothing else needs to be said. That's it. That will be our blessedness. We will be with the one who gave his life for our sins and who made it possible for us to experience far more than we could even fathom. Mercy and grace flowing from this Christ. So Christian, in the midst of the mundane routines of life, in the midst of your trials, both physical and emotional and spiritual, in the midst of temptations, this is what we're waiting for. Do you get that? Do you really get that? This is what, this is what awaits you. If you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus, and if the testimonies that were given at the beginning of this service, if, if, if that is your testimony, that Christ has come and changed your heart, he saved you. You were in sin. Christ came and he saved you. He changed you. Now you live unto God. If that is you and the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, you have every reason, every reason to be certain that this awaits you. It's coming. And this affects the way we live. It affects the way we suffer. It affects everything. And that leads us to the second, the second for today, the second point for today, and the fourth for these two sermons, the event of grace. So the expectation of grace, now we come to the event of grace. Look at verse 14. who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That grace that we receive from God goes back to a central and foundational event and that event is the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on a Roman cross where he, as the text says, gave himself up for us. I love the fact that Ephesians 25, 26, which we looked at when we did our series on the family. I love the fact that Paul there adds this 
extra idea, he says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It is Christ's love and Christ's work that form the foundation for a gospel life. It is Christ's love and Christ's work that form the foundation for grace. And this is why we are who we are. You know, you look at your life and you think about all the, thing, all the victories that God has brought you spiritually, the things that God has brought you through. You know, Liz in particular talked about those individual struggles that she had to overcome at those key periods in her life. And you look back on your life, you see all of those things and you think, how? How am I here? Where I stand now, I still broken, still imperfect, very much in need of grace. But, but how did I get to this point? And the answer is this, the event of grace Christ's self-giving sacrifice on the cross that, was, that f- was flowing out of his love. He loved us and he gave himself for us. This tells us two things. One, there's no boasting in the Christian life. It's about Christ's work, not our works. We look at our works and we may think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. This is, this is worth, you know, sort of some merit. There's no merit in our works. All of our works have any merit that our works would ever have before God have that merit only because of Christ's meritorious work on the cross. His finished work on the cross is the foundation for everything that we have and everything that we are which flows out of his love. This tells us we can't earn anything. Christ's work accomplishes it. Not our works. Our works accomplish nothing. They're they're nasty, filthy before a holy God. Christ's work is perfect and it is upon Christ's work that the Holy Spirit graciously changes our hearts so that we are able to do in Christ things that are pleasing to the Lord. William Hendrickson in his commentary says that this self-giving act of Jesus was, listen to these words, necessary, objective, voluntary, expiatory, give a little parentheses there and explain that. Simply means remove guilt, removing sin, expiatory, propitiatory, meaning that it absorbs or satisfies the wrath of God. It is expiatory, it is propitiatory, it is substitutionary. Christ did this in our place, on our behalf, as it says here, for us. And it is efficacious, meaning that it brings about the effects for which it was planned and carried out. The idea of efficacious goes with what we see in our text. Through the self-giving of Christ, we are purchased, purified, and possessed. That's what we see in each of these, in 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 this verse. So let's look at these. Purchased, purified, and possessed. First, purchased. We are redeemed or bought by the payment of a ransom. Paul, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he tells them to shepherd the flock of God which is among you, which Christ purchased with his own blood. I can remember when I was candidating for the pastoral position here, I remember talking with one of the individuals on the pastor search team, and I was talking with her about about the church and and. I made a comment about the church being precious. And she said, well, you know, we talked about what that means. And and that's where I get this idea. The church is precious. The church is precious because every local church is precious. The universal church is precious because Christ purchased it with his own blood. We are not intrinsically precious. 
We are precious because of the cost for our salvation, Christ's blood. And we are redeemed from rebellion against God's law, from a futile way of life. Our lawless deeds are forgiven, as Paul says in Romans 4, 7. We are redeemed from that way of life to a life lived unto God. We are purified is the second thing we see here. And that simply means that we are cleansed from the defilement of sin. Guilt is removed, as I said, expiatory. That idea that the guilt that was upon us, God looked down and he saw us and all that he could see was guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Enemies of God, hostile to God. Children of wrath, condemned. Jesus' death, takes all of that away. All of that is removed. Our consciences are cleansed. That guilty conscience that stands over us, that condemns us as sinners, is changed. It is cleansed. Our hearts are turned away from loving sin to loving God. And this continues throughout our lives. So this purification that Christ purchased for us on the cross, it, it, shows itself up every day of our lives as Christ is constantly purifying us. We, stand, we sit here this morning, all of us here this morning, are, who are Christians, are being sanctified. We've been sanctified once and for all in that we've been set apart when God justified us through Christ. But we are being sanctified, meaning that when we look back on today, two weeks from now, two years from now, two decades from now, we will see how God's grace was conforming us, transforming us into the image of Jesus. All of this was purchased for us. All of this was accomplished for us in that event 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on that cross and bore the wrath of his Father. And we are possessed. We are being purified as Christ's special people. 1 Peter 2, 9, I want you to hear this this is who we are as Christians. Listen to what God's word says about us. But you are a chosen people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light. This is why we don't practice lawlessness. This is the motivation for holiness. Not so we can earn God's favor or have a basis for boasting. It's because this is who we are. We are God's holy people. A royal priesthood. We are a people for his own possession who proclaim with word and deed his excellencies. We who were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And it is out of this identity as Christ's special people that we come to our final point for today and for these two sermons. And that is the end of grace. The end of grace. As Christ's possession, we are those who are what? At the end of, the, at the end of this passage. Zealous for good works. You know what I love about this passage? Look at the third word of this entire chunk of scripture. Grace. And look at the last word of this passage. Works. If there ever was confusion, if there ever was confusion about how grace, 
the unmerited favor of God and the works that we do in our lives, born out of holiness, born out of godliness, it's found here in this wonderful passage of scripture. Grace and works are like sort of sandwiching in all of this glorious gospel truth. So no Christian who loves grace should have a problem with works. And no Christian who loves works should have a problem with grace or forget grace or set grace aside or make little of God's grace. But it is possible, as we finish up this morning, it is possible to fall short of the end in your emphasis on grace. And here's what I mean. The Christian comes along and they maybe come out of a legalistic background or the Christian comes along, comes to discover the depth of God's grace and really begins to, to understand that unmerited favor of God in Christ and that our standing does not depend on our performance but it depends on Christ's righteousness credited to our account. And that even the works we do were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before the ages began, they were prepared that we should walk in them as it says in Ephesians 2.10. And so maybe, you know, you come along and you begin to sort of delight in this grace. You begin to celebrate this grace, make much of this grace. And I think there are two ways that we fall short of the end in our emphasis on grace. Here's the first. We focus merely on our own personal assurance in God's grace. In other words, we begin to meditate on God's grace. It becomes a, a great focus for us. And then we begin to turn entirely inward. And the only thing that we can focus on, the only thing that occupies our minds, is our own introspective pursuit of assurance. It's all here. Good, I've discovered God's grace. I mean, make sure I understand it. Make sure I got it. Make sure I apply it to my heart. It's here, it's here. It's all about me. It's all about what's going on inside of me. Now, of course, we know that once we discover grace and we begin to be satisfied in God's grace, assured in God's grace, we begin to rest in God's grace and accept who we are in Christ, God's grace, all of this, to dwell on that, to meditate on that, to know that is biblical, of course. We are to make our calling and election sure. We are to, we are to rest in Christ. But to make that itself the end of grace, grace is moving in a direction, and to make that the end and to stop there is to fall short of the objective, the goal, the end, the aim of God's grace as we see here in this passage. Let me give you another way in which we fall short. In addition to being overly introspective and overly concerned with our own soul's state, we could also focus on our liberty in Christ. And so you begin to live the Christian life and you realize, man, Christian life's really not about all the things I don't do. Great! It's not this long list of all the things that I don't do and, and all of the, 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 these, these do's and don'ts, this legalistic system. It's not about that. So we, we discover God's grace. We learn to, we, ha we have a deeper understanding of what biblical grace is. And we begin to sort of push those lists aside a little bit. We begin to focus on the liberty that we have in Christ. And that it's not about making sure we don't do all of these things, but it is about living out the gospel in our daily lives. And here's the problem, is a focus on grace can end there. 
It can end with introspection and and an over-focus on one's personal assurance, and it can end here on an overly-focused attitude towards your liberty in Christ. Both of those are selfish. Both of those are focused on self. What we find here is different. Grace has the end of good works. To those who are zealous for good works. You can say it this way, since the train I think has gone by about seven times. Not really, but about twice. Um, You can say this way, that the train of grace in our lives has the destination of good works if you're going to be biblical in your understanding of God's grace. In this life, that's the destination of grace. Why? Why is that the case? Matthew 5, 16, our Lord says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what I want to say at the end here. Good works should be our zealous goal or end in this life because of this. Because the glory of God is our end and aim and goal in this life. And it is through our good works clearly that God is glorified. It is through our good works that the excellencies of our creator and our savior are made known and displayed and held up as great and powerful and wonderful and life transforming. God's glory is displayed most wondrously and clearly, hear this, in the power of his grace to transform the lives of his people. This is a glorious God. This is a glorious God who took Liz's life and Brittany's life and Jeremy's life and transformed them. And this is a glorious God who by his grace has transformed each of us who belong to him. And it is by our good works that we manifest this, demonstrate this, make much of this in this world. The glory of God is at stake in how we understand God's grace. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you for this meaty passage of scripture where we see in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared We see in verse 14 that you possess us through the cross work of your son and as you take possession of us, we become a special holy people who are zealous for making much of you in the world through our deeds. God, help us. Help us love your son's appearing and help us look forward to his second appearing and help us as we live in this present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly as we make much of your glory 
And specifically, Father, as we make much of your glorious, transforming grace. In Jesus' name, amen.